I know that I have talked about it enough that you're probably tired of hearing about it. But you know, Pam and I were not originally supposed to go to Cambodia last July. A year or more ago, I was asked to go there and teach in February of 2014, meaning next month. We were all excited about that. Yes, uh, Christopher called and said, hey, can you, can you come and teach in February of 2014? Yes. I don't even have to talk to Pam. We'll do it. It's far enough out we can plan that. And then Christopher called back. Christopher LaPel called and, and said that someone who was scheduled to go and teach last July could not go then. Their church was going as a group. It was some kind of uh, snafu. So would I be willing, if possible, to switch and to move our trip up by seven months and go in July and not this coming February? And I checked with Pam, and I think, I think she told Dennis and Jane she wanted it off. She might have just assumed she could get it. But uh, we said, yeah, we could do that. And as you know, we went there, and I spent a week teaching, and then we went to Phnom Penh, where we met Don Brewster, I've told you about that, and he told us about the need that AIM has for staff pastors, and then we came home, and, we, and Don said, you can think and pray about that if that's the conversation you want to have, you want to go there in the future, we can talk about that. So we, we did think, and we prayed, and we applied for the position, and when AIM told us in late September that they had accepted us, we'd been invited to come over there and serve with them as staff pastors. I was hoping, and I know I said it out loud, that uh, things would come together quickly enough that we could go to Cambodia in May, June, or July. Officially, we told people we wanted to be there no later than one year after being accepted. That would be this coming fall. And at the time, some of you said that you did not think it would take that long for us to get there, didn't you, Jim? And he was not the only one that said things like that. And my thinking was, well, that'd be great, but you know, we got to sell the house, we got to raise support to go there, we got to make all sorts of plans. We got a lot of, we've had a life here for almost 15 years. How could we get all that stuff done by next summer? We probably could not. But things moved along quickly. The house closed last Friday. We already have the check out of escrow from the escrow company. And thanks to some friends of our congregation who are from California who come up here, we have a place to stay in Seal Rock for the next month or two. We'll be moving in there Tuesday or Wednesday. Depends on how much we want to camp out in our vacant house. But uh, we're not... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, tomorrow. Um, Also, we, we sold Pam's car. We liquidated our household items yesterday. Our international health insurance will be in effect at the end of the month. And we have 30 days to actually be international by the time that comes in effect, when that, after that comes in effect, for it to be valid. And we even have our plane tickets uh, for Cambodia that leave on February 25th. And get this, we don't actually get into Cambodia. It'll be the 27th over there when we get in there. It doesn't take two whole days, but it takes a better part of one whole day to get between here and there. And I remember I wrote an email to Don Brewster, essentially applying for the job on my birthday last August 26th. So we will be in Cambodia almost six months to the day after we got serious about going there. And I think if you talk to missionaries, that might be some kind of record for things like this to happen that fast. And some of you, as well as plenty of other people that we know, we ran into somebody this week at the, at the title company when we were over there signing papers uh, earlier in a week, have used phrases like, well, this was obviously just meant to be. Or the, the Christian, the theistic view is God is obviously behind your move to Cambodia. 
And the implication that there is some divine providence evident in how everything has come together to allow us to get there so soon. Put another way, God is running interference for us. Well, I don't doubt that that is true. But a year ago, almost to the day, today's the 19th, and it was the 20th, I looked on my, uh, on my computer, almost to the day, I stood up right here and I talked about how, generally speaking, I do not believe that God has a wonderful, specific plan for the life of each and every believer. And I want to spend my time this morning revisiting that thought in the light of how well the way seems to have been paid for us to get to Cambodia. Now, you've probably heard heard this uh, repeated many times, this idea, and it's put forth by the likes of Joel Osteen and and much more uh, less notorious people in my mind, like Rick Warren and and other people who I generally agree with on so many things, and many less popular preachers, teachers, and authors, this idea that God has a, a perfect vision, one perfect vision, one path, one detailed itinerary for your life, and if you earnestly seek to find that path and you try to understand it and you do your best to follow it and you stay on that road, then you're going to have a good life. Now, Having a good life in this context is often, though not always, but often understood to mean that you'll be wealthy or at least not poor, that you'll always have the love of your life by your side, you know, you won't be single and looking or divorced or anything like that, that your job will be fulfilling and it won't be mind-numbingly boring or drudgery or, or difficult for you, that your children will always be a source of joy to you and not major frustrations, and that you'll enjoy, if not good health, at least pretty good health. And I maintain that try as you might, you simply will not, you simply will not find passages in the Bible taken in their proper context and understood by the standard rules of biblical interpretation and hermeneutics. You will not find passages supporting this idea that God has a detailed plan for the ideal life for each and every one of us, each and every follower of Jesus Christ, and that plan is something that we're supposed to find and then follow. Now, you may have always thought this, and a lot of people will say things like, well, I'm just trying to figure out what God wants me to do when they're at a crossroads in their life. And, you know, sometimes we, we do that because it sounds very spiritual. It sounds like, oh, I'm trying to take God into account. Well, who can blame you for that? But I'm telling you, I don't believe that that is a true-to-the-Bible idea. And it seems like everybody's favorite verse in regards to this is, uh, this God has a wonderful plan thought is Jeremiah 29, 11. And many of you, I'm sure, can quote it from memory. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Thank you. People read that or they recite it and they say to me, gee, see, God does have plans for me. You're mistaken, Derek. It says so right here in the Bible. Fact. The problem with that understanding of this verse is that it takes it completely out of context. Jeremiah was appointed by God to explain to the people of Judah why it was that very soon the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to attack them. They were going to defeat them. And they were going to cart many thousands of them off to Babylon. And after this terrible fate, this terrible national fate and shameful thing befell them, they were going to sit there on the banks of the Euphrates River and think that like the, the lost ten tribes of Israel, they were never going to be heard from again. And, and essentially, they were just going to be gone. They were, they were, going, they were going to be thinking, be tempted to go to say that God, God has forgotten us. 
We, we worshiped other false idols and gods one too many times, and that was the straw that broke the Almighty's back. And so he got fed up with this, and he sent the Babylonians as his divine judgment. And here we sit far from home, a conquered, captive people living in a foreign land, and it just looks like God does not love us anymore. But in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, we find God's promise and his reassurance to captive Israel there that eventually they or at least some of them, would return from exile. Now, this was going to take 70 years to come about, we know from history. Still, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture that reassures us of God's care for His people. But you know, it is not specifically aimed at the followers of Jesus living in the 21st century, nor the 20th, nor the 19th, or as far back as you want to go. Despite what many people believe, the fact is that every promise in the Bible is not necessarily a promise for us. Jeremiah 29, 11 does not teach that God has a wonderful, unique life plan for each and every one of us. It just doesn't say that. And if you believe that to be true, then you at least need to find a better proof text to back it up, is what I'm saying there. Now, some believers will counter this argument, my argument here, with the fact that the Bible is truly full of stories about people who God obviously did have a plan for. Abraham is some, oftentimes cited. After all, God told him to emigrate, sight unseen, leave the land, leave your home, and go to a land that I will show you, to a land that was far from his home, and he told him that if he obeyed, if he lived by faith and did what God said, he trusted in God, then he would have a great many descendants like the stars in the sky, like the, like the sand of the seashore, and they would be a great nation, and they would live in that most desirable stretch of real estate in that whole area, that that would be their home for as long as they kept that covenant. And that's a biblical fact. God did have plans for Abraham. Abraham obeyed those plans. Now, he obeyed eventually, and he obeyed imperfectly, uh, he didn't always keep up his end of the covenant, and there was a lot of side trips and a lot of really janky things, you know, like pimping out his, his wife as his sister and things like that that went on. He was not, not the, the, the most uh, upright fellow in all things, but he did eventually do what God asked him to do, and things worked out the way that God said they would. But in Genesis 16, there's a portion of the story of Abraham's life that strikes me as more applicable to us and how we often live our lives and how we think about God's will and everything like that. As I said, God had promised Abraham that even though he and his wife were quite old, that he would have children one day, not just one child. The implication was he would have many because his descendants would be a, a great nation. And Abraham, it was funny, he both believed God, the Bible tells us, yet he also questioned God. He said, how can I be sure that my descendants will really live in this land? You know, he did what he was told, but then he said, and he got there and he said, yeah, but how can I really know for sure, Lord? And God said, basically, not, not to worry. This is going to happen just like I promised you. Just don't stop believing, you know. Apparently, though, not very long after God does reassures him of this. He has like a, a promise-keeping ceremony and it involved the sacrificing a cow, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, and, and dividing them in half, and, and the Lord passed between them and everything like that. Abraham's wife gets the idea that it's really her and Abe's responsibility to help God along in keeping this promise of a great nation of descendants. You know, it's like she says, I know God made this promise, but it seems to me that there's only one way that that's really going to get done. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 16 about how this whole fiasco unfolded. 
And as I, I read this, we've got, we got a slide Todd's going to put up there. At least I think we do. Yes, we do. You'll notice that Abraham here is called Abram, and Sarah, his wife, is still Sarai. Uh, God later renames them when they formalize the covenant, but at this point, they're still going by their birth name. So Genesis 16, starting with verse 1, just a few verses here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as a wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now she's pregnant. She treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, Look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Now this is like one of those terrible reality shows on on Lifetime or Bravo or something like that, isn't it? Sarah Sarah has this idea. I know how to fix this. I'll have my husband sleep with the Egyptian girl, the house helper, the slave, and then her child will be his, and his child will be mine. She was doing the, the transitive property of childbirth there, apparently like that. And, and you know, I, you just, it's like that, that Disney movie. And she, then she said, this could only end brilliantly. You know, what could go wrong here? And Abram was no smarter. His wife runs this crazy plan by him, and he looks at the Egyptian girl and goes, okay, whatever you say, honey, if, if you're sure, you know. And of course it backfires. Sarai might have dreamed up the plan, but she didn't like the results. I could have told you that was going to happen. First, the slave girl does get pregnant. And here's a woman who wanted to, be, wanted to have children all her life. She's getting old, and she's not pregnant. And the slave girl says, okay, I know what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to get one up on my mistress. And she starts treating Sarah, Abraham's actual first wife, she starts treating her like trash. So then Sarah goes to Abram and she blames him only, and it's only partially unfairly because he, he, he should have put a stop to it, said, no, 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 let's just do what, let's not do this. Let's let God fulfill his promises. Let's let him, him let's put the responsibility on him. But Abraham, what does he do? Instead of even then trying to limit the damage, he punts and he says, hey, she's your problem. You do what you need to do. So then Sarah starts treating Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, like trash until she runs away. Now, there's more to this story. There's a lot more to it. And if you've never read it, I, I, during halftime, during a game today, when Ben's going to be rooting for the Sea Chickens. Oh, wait, he has his 49ers t-shirt on underneath there. Yeah, right. So what, during halftime, uh, don't listen to Lou Holtz because you have to turn on the closed captioning and understand him if he's on or something like that. Just turn off the TV and pull out your Bibles and open to Genesis 16 and read the rest of this, of this uh, soap opera. Uh, and you'll find out that it, it ends badly for everyone involved. See, God had a plan for Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, and he didn't need their help in making that plan come to pass. Now, one of the lessons that we almost always take away from this story when we talk, it, talk about it or teach it or, or anything like that is that so much of the time we get this idea in our heads about how God is going to work something out, and then we, we said, this is the way that's going to happen. We go from point A to, to point X, and, we, and, and we, we fill it in there, and we say, okay, it's our job to 
Find this plan and make it work and everything like that. Say we're unhappy with our lives, we want to make a change. Maybe you don't like your job or your, or your marital status or where you live or what city you call home or what country or what you spend your money on. And so we pray about it. And we, oh, I'm just trying to find out what the Lord wants me to do. And after time, we come to a conclusion. And we say, well, God wants us to do X. I've had many people over the years tell me, well, we just really feel what God wants us to do. And I bite my tongue because I want to say, are you nuts? God doesn't want you to do that. You want to do that. This is going to end terribly. And I'm almost always right. And that's the truth. So we get to, then we get to try to make X happen in our lives. And none of us, I'm not saying I never do this. Uh, I'll have a story about that a little later. But the only thing is what usually happens when we do that, when we decide what God's will is for us, and we decide how God is going to make his will happen in our lives, and we decide if we're going to do that, things get screwed up and the whole business usually blows up in our faces. The truth is, I have known of many stories, heard many stories about people who were certain that a particular course of action was God's will for them. Well, I just know God is leading me into the ministry, or I just know that God has provided this job, or, or th- that I just know God wants us to move to this city, or I know that God wants me to marry this person. I just need to convince her that God wants me to marry her. I know that God wants me to make this purchase, you know. And then that plan could just completely falls flat. And a smart aleck in me, well, it's not hard for you to believe if you know me, wants to then say, I guess God really blew it, didn't he? But I don't say that, not usually. Justice like that one. Thanks, Justice. <laughs> but those types of stories seem to be, the way, be way more plentiful than the ones that end with, so, you know, we did what we were certain God was leading us to do, and all these years later, we'll, we are still certain that that course of action was his will. I'm not saying that we should not seek to better our lives or to pursue different avenues of how to to serve God or that God does not work in our lives. I'm not saying that. I think our story, mine and Pam's story, is, is anecdotal evidence that he does do that. I am just saying that we, none of us, are particularly good at recognizing God's hand in our lives at the time that it may very well be happening. In fact, I believe that we almost never see it until long after the fact. It's a hindsight kind of thing. Over 25 years ago, Pam and I were pretty sure that God wanted us to be missionaries. We didn't hear a voice commanding us to move to South America or anything like that. We had gone to Argentina, to Buenos Aires on a missions internship, spent a a winter down there one summer. And we caught the bug and we realized that we kind of had a knack for, for picking up language a little faster than some of our peers. You hear a guy from uh, Iowa speak, uh, speak Spanish with a Midwestern accent. You're going, he doesn't even hear that. Okay, I think I can do a better job than that, you know. And we made friends with people who were down there, uh, Argentines and Americans living down there, and, and we really wanted to return. So we tried to make that happen, and I don't think that was a sin or that was wrong or anything, but it was, it was rough going. We were young, we were untested, and unsurprisingly, not too many churches wanted to give us money to go live in Argentina and work for God down there. And we were discouraged. And a missionary friend uh, who served in Africa at the time was back in the States, and we knew him from the church we were in, uh, uh, our church family at the time. We were on the missions committee, and he, we told him what was going on. He suggested that we defer that dream and we looked for a position in ministry in the U.S. And he said, and don't, don't consider that as second best or settling or anything like that. So 
you know, I may be stupid, but sometimes I take good advice, and I, I applied to be a youth minister because that's what you did, person in my position, at several churches. And two hopeful possibilities failed to, material, to, to materialize, to pan out. One of them was, uh, was a, a church in Spokane. I knew that we knew the pastor. It's a church where my sister is now the secretary all these years later, and, and my brother-in-law is the volunteer youth minister, basically. Uh, they're the lead sp- youth sponsors up there. And I thought I was going to be the youth minister up there. It was going to be great. It was in the right part of the country, and family was, we had family up there, and that's the area, the part of the country I grew up in is uh, the Inland Empire in eastern Washington. And we left there on a Sunday afternoon, and he said, well, this is looking good. I think we might call you. You might get hired sooner than you think. That's what the pastor told me. Well, somebody, an elder who was smarter than most of them, said, I don't know if he's the right guy for the job. He was right. I wasn't. They kept looking. Another one was a church here in Oregon. There was also family ties there, and I'm thankful that didn't pan out. But I actually had a letter of invitation from the elders. We want you to come be our youth minister. I knew the guy was the senior pastor. He was a friend of mine. Anyway, those both fizzled, and I was discouraged. And my mentor, Steve Moore, over in Cherry Lane, a 10-mile Christian in Meridian, Idaho, he said, you know, you'll learn a lot more if you just go find a small church then you'll be the only paid staff, and you'll be the preacher there, and do that. He says, that's, that's not a bad gig, you know. So, again, I listened to good advice. I sent out resumes all over the western U.S., and the, one of the farthest ones I sent away was in Gallup, New Mexico. And we went down there, <clears throat> and we were there for six years. And it was a great experience, and Steve was right. I, I learned a lot. And then we came here, and we've been here for nearly 15 years. And all this time, uh, I said, whenever I would talk about this very thing about trying to go to Argentina and stuff, I, when the subject came up, I said that before I ever considered working in a foreign field, being a missionary, as we call it again, that this whole fundraising thing would have to be a lot less frustrating than it was the first time we tried to do it. Well, now here we are, just this close to being missionaries. Not in South America, no, that's much too similar to the culture we know. Now, we're going to one of the most backward places on a continent that seems thoroughly alien to all of us Westerners. Not going to be speaking Spanish, which is a language that we have a, a rudimentary grasp of. No, we get to learn Kamai, which is just nuts. Uh, we'll not be raising our children on the mission field as we planned, but leaving them behind to go spend the second half, our, our second life together, uh, the second half of our middle age in a foreign country. Now, granted, raising support has not been a fr- the frustration it was 25 years ago, and for that I am thankful, believe you me. Now, did God orchestrate all of this to happen just as it did? And I think that objectively a person would have to answer that there is no way of knowing this side of judgment. I believe that he has been at work in our lives, but I can also say that I spent very little time at any given point in that journey worrying about where precisely God wanted me to be or what exactly he wanted me to be doing. The truth is I had my standing orders. Love God and love people. Be salt and light in this world. So my counsel would be to to just live by those standing orders. You know, apply for that new job if that's what you want to do. Plan to move someplace if that's what you want to do. Marry the person you love if you can convince him or her that uh, you're worthy. You know, if if those things are what you desire, then, then go for it. 
Just know that more important than fretting over God's will in your life and worrying over every little decision, well, does God want me to live in Newport or Toledo? Or, or should we move to Denver? Uh, should we get this house or should I buy a new boat instead? Or should I change jobs or, or stay where I'm at? Much more important than imputing some kind of spiritual motive and guidance for those kind of decisions is to decide that you are going to love God and love people and be salt and light wherever you end up doing whatever you end up doing. You know, many of the people that I went to college with were certain they were on the track. They were going to be in the ministry, as we say. They were going to be pastors. They were going to be youth ministers. They are going to be on staff at a church or a parachurch organization. But many of them are now doing completely different things with their lives. I know because of the magic of Facebook. But you know, the best ones did not let, them, let that ruin their lives. They did not let that change their vision of being of service to the kingdom or even their happiness, their sense of fulfillment and meaning in life because they know what they're about. Many of them are probably doing more for the kingdom of God and are more fulfilled than they would have been had their original plans worked out as they were just certain that they were. And if we get locked into this, well, I just have to find out what God's plan is for my life kind of thinking, then we risk getting very frustrated when plans change. And you know what? They always do. They always do. And of course, I have not even touched on the fact that in the Bible, quite oftentimes when people's lives were closely orchestrated by God, the result was anything but a good life, at least the way that most people think of such things. Quite often, obeying God has meant and does mean suffering. Now, I'm, it's, it's our choice to go to Cambodia. I'm not complaining here. But, you know, let me just tell you, there is a reason that not every American is lining up to live in places like Cambodia. It's just better here at least in the ways that most people understand the concept of better. I can drink water out of the tap here. I don't dare do that in Cambodia. You pay for that for a day or two or three. If you're lucky, that's all. What I'm saying is that my hope for all of you, at whatever stage of life you are in, you know, whatever your job, whatever your living situation, whether you're in a, in a good marriage or you're, you're single or, and you're happy with that or you want to get married or you're happy with your home and your community you live in or, or maybe you're looking at other possibilities, my prayer is that you will decide to do what you can in the service of God, in the service of His church, His people, His family, right where and when you are. I desperately hope you will not get bogged down in the I'm searching for God's will for my life trap and, and think, well, I just have to find it. No, no, you, you're where you are. God's will is that you be salt and light, that you, that, you, uh, that, that you love him and you love people as yourself in his name. That's God's will. That's the important thing. That's what we can know for sure. Don't get bogged down in this, well, I, I'm just trying to find out God's will for my life. And it's some exotic, weird thing like moving to Cambodia. Because for most of you, it's probably not. And it could be, I don't think this is the case for a second, but it could be it's not really for us. Anyway, let me be completely honest, like I've been lying up to this point. But anyway, let me be very frank. I don't know exactly how it all works, but I'm quite certain of some ways it doesn't work. 
And that God is, as another quote from my mentor, Steve Moore, I remember this, he said in a sermon probably 25 to 30 years ago I heard this. He said, God is not some cosmic Easter bunny hiding his will in eggs that then we then have to search out. I know that's how it doesn't work. That much I'm certain of. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, my prayer is that all of us would earnestly and honestly say to you and to, to release you to work in our lives that when we need to be challenged to step up our game or to, to, to think outside of our comfort zones and to serve you in different ways and, and ways we hadn't even thought of before, that we would do so in faith, that we would let you guide our path in, in the most uh, real sense, that we would view our lives as gifts from you and start thinking no matter where we are, no matter what situation we are in, we can start thinking about how we can best serve you, how we can best use all the things you've given us, from our money to our abilities to our personalities to, our, to uh, the, the skills that we have developed or, or innately have. We would think about how we can use them for you and your kingdom, how we can best be salt and light in this world, how we can show our love for you and love others in your name in such a way that we just show them how awesome you are and how great life in your son Jesus can be. Whether we live here in Newport or Toledo or even Seal Rock, we just ask you would help us to live 100% for you and not get bogged down in all the pseudo-Christian garbage that's out there but to stay what we know and what's clear from your word, that your will is something we're to do and to live in and to be in. In Jesus' name, amen.